Hello, and welcome to Watering Seeds, the podcast conversation that reviews and reapplies the preached word to our own minds and hearts and those of our listeners. Uh, this podcast is the ministry of Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, we, today we are discussing a, a recent sermon from last Sunday entitled Alive in Christ from Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 7. If you missed that sermon, you can find it on our website and listen to it there and then come back uh, to the podcast. Uh, my name is Sean McCann. I'm one of the pastors and I'm here with my fellow pastor, Chris ba- Chris Brown. <laughs> Welcome, Chris. You How got are you? It. I'm good. It's a tough last name to pronounce. <laughs> Uh, all right, as we said last couple of weeks, uh, Chris has done double duty in listening to the sermon twice. Uh, I'm going to have that experience next week, or mm-hmm. this coming Sunday, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're preaching one of the best passages in Ephesians. Which I is... was thinking about that. I was thinking, how can you do justice to this passage, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10? Maybe I'll just read it and we'll just sit there for 20 minutes. That's why I gave it to you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) The most well-known passages in Scripture, I find to be the hardest ones to preach. Mm So, just keep it simple and stick to the the text. Mm. All right, so we're going to discuss some questions on uh, Ephesians 2, 4-7. Alive in Christ is the main idea. Uh, it's a contrast to the first three verses of chapter 2, dead in trespasses and sin. The main point of the sermon uh, is that salvation is all of grace. That's the, really the main point, or part of the main point of Scripture. Uh, so I've got some, some notes and some questions jotted down, but I'm going to put it to you first, Chris. All right. You got any uh, questions kind of from the jump about the sermon? Yeah, you started off with that key phrase uh, in verse 4, But God... And my question was, why, why do people make such a big deal about this little phrase, but God, de theos, this little, little tiny phrase? Okay. Yeah, this whole sermon is the answer to that. Yeah, I that's guess. right. <laughs> um, I mean, it's by putting, by, but, that little English word, I mean, it sets what's about to come apart from what came beforehand. Mm. So we track the first three verses and think there should be something, right? Uh, maybe before we start, so God fully punished us for all we deserved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> End of story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're just starting with but, and that, what did I call the sermon? John Stott's mighty adversative, right? The reversal of what's come before. Um, I mean, that really is the definition of what God does for us. He reverses our fortunes. Uh, he turns them upside down uh, from what we so rightly deserve. So I've heard others kind of meditate on those two words as such uh, great words to get us started, right? Uh, and it's sort of, we can, they introduce us to grace because if we were to follow the train of thought through works and our deserving, uh, they would only end up in pain and darkness. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's that contrast reversal that God brings about that is so worthy of celebrating. When you were talking about this in the sermon, you started off with that illustration with there, there's always a but. And right. I was thinking about all the times I've heard that where there's <laughs> something, you know, this happened and it was great and then this and this, but, yeah. and that's always going to happen in a fallen world. It, uh, that, that's so true. Um, 
I also was thinking, I read an article where they were talking about how to provide criticism, the best way to do criticism. And they said people do the, uh, the criticism sandwich. Uh-huh. You know, they okay. start with good, uh-huh. and then they say, but, yeah. bad, and put it in the middle, and then they end it with the good. Yeah. And the article I read said, it's sometimes it's okay to do that, but if you do it every time, then people think whenever you give good, good criticism... You're gonna. You're about to come in with the but, but so. But this one, Paul flips it. I thought that yeah. was great because he starts off. You're dead. Right. He just starts out the bad. Like, we need to know the power of God because you were in a terrible situation. Yeah. So he starts off with how horrible we're doing. Right. You know the bad criticism. That's right. That's uh, right. And then he flips it, the opposite way, which is never how it works in a fallen world. Uh, yeah. So my other sermon when I was. The other idea I had for introduction was uh, you want the, the good news or the bad news first. And there's different mm. kinds of people in the world, right? Mm-hmm. People want good news first or bad news first. Uh, and how Paul gives us the bad news first. Uh, but I, I do want to highlight that word, but, because it's just, this, uh, it is such a wonderful introduction to the good news. So, but God launches us into grace all throughout. Uh, grace at the beginning, grace in the middle, grace uh, through to the end. So I, my first point was grace at the source. And why is it that God I would intervene on behalf of the dead? So a uh, question to you, why does it matter what motivates God? Right? I mean, the whole point of this was that we identify God is not motivated by us. He's motivated by who he is. Yeah. Right? And his attributes. Why is that a big deal? That's a big deal. Well, we actually just watched that last night. For the second time, we watched American Gospel, the first one, and then I think we're going to try to watch the next one tonight, maybe. Uh, But it's the reason I brought it up is because they go through what is the gospel and what's God's motive in saving, and they compare it to what's taught in America, Hmm. uh, some of the biggest American churches, and a lot of the people teach things like, you really weren't that bad, um... God just really, really, really was interested in you because of who you are. You're so special to him. And that's what the cross is all about. It's showing how special you are to God. Hmm. And there's a sense in which you're like, well, right, the cross shows that God loves us. But it isn't because of something that was that like I deserved because, you know, I'm just a great human being. I look real good or mm-hmm. I thought mm-hmm. really good thoughts or, mm-hmm. or I was thinking like... Uh, was it Maria from The Sound of Music? At the end of it, she ends up getting married to the captain. She sings this song, and she's like, Well, it, in the middle of my wicked childhood, I must have done something good for God to hmm. allow me to get married. Uh, and it's the same issue here. If, if there's some, there must be some motive in me that makes me God choose me, um, that's a big deal. Because it means I am, in some sense, the cause of God saving me. Um, and that takes the glory away from God, and it denies our state of sin. So it just denies reality. Um, so that's why it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if part of that, and talking about the American gospel, mm-hmm. just the concept in general, and that God chooses us because of something lovely in us. Mm-hmm. You know, if we sort of over-romanticize the gospel, mm-hmm. right? That, that God, there is, of course, the image of Christ as the groom and his bride as the church, but sort of we are, you know, attractive mm-hmm. to God. And so he is moving towards us in a certain way, mm-hmm. as opposed to the 
the image of a father with a child, right? And mm-hmm. that's, you know, romantic love does fade, which is why we take marriage vows, right? Parental love uh, is never based on in, the, in how it should be, at least. Mm-hmm. Anything that has to do with a child. And I cannot imagine, I know many people live this experience, but as a child, knowing your place in your parent's heart was contingent upon your behavior or your appearance or your success. I know many children feel that way and that's devastating, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so the for me, I, I remember uh, years ago hearing a sermon on the Trinity and just the, the godliness of God and really the love of the Father towards the Son. Mm-hmm. And it, so it was from John chapter 3, the latter part. And it was just this... It was just such a, a peaceful meditation, mm. right? That God's love is unchanging mm. uh, and it is eternally placed on the Son. And so my union with Christ by faith brings me into that inseparable bond. And I mean, just the warm and fuzzies, right? I mean, it, it, but just as a child, I mean, I had parents who I always knew loved me. And so to be in that place of security, right, mm. whether I fail or whether I rebel against them, uh, that that's continually there because of who they are. It's such, uh, it is just such a peaceful place to be as a child of God, to dwell on what motivates God to mm-hmm. love me. So you're adding, so not only is it just, it's it's untrue to, to mess this up and mistake mm-hmm. uh, the source or the reason God chose to love us, mm-hmm. but it also has extreme practical effects in the way we think about God, the way we, we feel in life in general. Right. Uh, which I think that was kind of... That was the application. Your the application, which yeah. is great, which is I didn't earn my way in. Right. In any way. Right. Therefore, I can't earn my way out. Yeah. If God had his love set upon enemies because of who he is, mm-hmm. then nothing's going to make him mm-hmm. stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, any other thoughts on that first point before we jump into the next one? Yeah, I just wanted to say that illustration was great. Uh, the puppy. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the evil, not the evil puppy. Well, yeah. It was evil, evil in the illustration. It's trying to kill yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Right. As soon as you let it out, it's going to try to kill you. Right. So, uh, it's a good picture of of what we are like. Uh, there was nothing that would cause us to say, oh, that's, you know, right. he really deserved, mm-hmm. deserved that. Mm-hmm. I was trying to picture other illustrations, like how else would you picture it? It's something rancid, maybe. You know, some it. The sense is it's something against. We were against God and revolting uh, by our wickedness and evil towards Him, and yet while we were in that state, He loved mm-hmm. and chose to save us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that's probably the best way of illustrating it because mm-hmm. uh, it's not. It's not a horrible depiction of us as, you know, mm-hmm. as bad as it could have been, mm-hmm. uh, but it's accurate. Yeah, I mean, we like to think of ourselves as merciful people. Mm. And we, even the the puppy illustration, I could see the gears in people's mind thinking, well, no, I think I would get that ugly puppy because I'd clean it up and I'd love it and it would be... It would become it, nice, it, right? It would be fine. And I, that's why I wanted to make the point about it, it wants to bite you. Like, it wants mm. to, to hurt you. And I... And I think we give ourselves too much credit. And we talk about something being pitiful. 
you know, I mean, we watch too many Disney movies, right? Where the down and out is actually the hero, right? And just needs their chance. That's not who we are. And that's not what God sees in us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the dog one was the best illustration <laughs> I could come up with. I'm sure that's there's great. others. No, that's but yeah, wanting something, uh, choosing something that hates you and revolts against you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, the second heading was grace in the act. Uh, that was the main verb here is that you're made alive, which uh, includes in it being raised up with him and seated with him, right? Tying together uh, God's work on behalf of Jesus in chapter 1 with his work on our behalf in chapter 2 as we're united with Christ. So verse 6 of chapter 2 really parallels verse 20 uh, of chapter 1. Um it's hard to know. Did you have any questions on the second point? I had some, and they're pretty open-ended. You start with yours. I've got one for the end of it. All right, so here's the, here's the big open-ended one. Why is salvation by grace so wonderful? And then sort of the flip side of that, if it's really so wonderful, why is it so unappreciated hmm. by people? Hmm. Um, yeah, well, I get to preach on that this yeah. Sunday. <laughs> why? By grace, you've been saved. Through yeah. Why is it so wonderful? Uh, well, for one, because we deserve an eternal hell. Um, and I think that's related to the second one too. Yeah. It, we, we deserve, absolutely deserve the wrath of God for all of eternity. It's not as if we really don't deserve it, uh, or it's not really true or God wouldn't really do that. Or it's not really just for God to do that. No, it is just. We really deserve uh, the everlasting wrath of God against sin. And uh, it's something that if we were experiencing it, it, it would include dread knowing that we will, it will never stop. Mm-hmm. It will always continue. We'll still be angry at God and continue to receive punishment for our continued anger against God and just go on and on and on, and um, we deserve that. So the wonder of grace is that it comes into this situation and rescues us out of it uh, from something we absolutely deserve to get. Uh, so that's, that has to be presented. I mean, that's the case. And I think the reason why it's so unappreciated is because in our sinful, arrogant nature, uh, as we want to be autonomous beings and we think we don't deserve that. I deserve what I want. I deserve what I should get. Um, and even once we're saved, that tendency is still back in the back of our mind. You know, I, well, it's really not, it, I really wasn't that bad. I really didn't, it wouldn't have been that bad. Uh, the, the gracefulness of grace isn't really perceived um, so I think it's part of it. It's well, just our sin tendency. Yeah, that's good. So then why, just a follow-up, why, I mean, you and I believe this. I think most of our members believe this. But you still encounter Christians that this really doesn't sit well hmm. with them. I don't entirely know why that is. I know kind of their theological or biblical inject- objections. Mm-hmm. But to some, it seems to be such a, a visceral reaction. Yeah. Um, I've had one, um, one person actually tell me, they said, why should I be grateful that God 
purposed that I should become a sinner <laughs> and that I should then be under his wrath and then also save me so that I would love him and glorify him. Doesn't that seem manipulative? Why should I be grateful for that? So no, that, no personal responsibility. Right, exactly. Yeah. So that's where it really comes down to is, well, though he, he decreed that it would happen, you literally did it. Like you literally chose to rebel. You literally sinned against him and literally deserve justice. Mm -hmm. So it denies personal responsibility. And I think that's what everybody wants to do mm -hmm. is say, it's not my fault. It's my, it's this guy's fault. Mm -hmm. It's the devil's fault mm -hmm. or it's God's fault. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's, it all roots back to that mm -hmm. is let's blame it on God, even though he's the source of justice in our, he's the source of all of our moral standards, but we'll, we'll try to blame it on him uh, to escape the punishment. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think there's a corollary, as you're saying that, that we don't, especially as Americans, we don't like to ask for help. And so the idea that we were utterly without ability to do anything for ourselves, right? And there's nothing special about me mm. and my efforts uh, in, a, in a culture that prizes individual achievement and uniqueness. Mm. I do think it, it is incredibly humbling, hmm. right? I remember mm -hmm. seeing a meme recently, and it was a, it was like a, a kid. It was a little girl. And she was frowning, holding a sign, and she was smiling, holding a sign. And she's frowning, and the sign's like, "Religion tells me that I'm pitiful and a sinner and wicked," and on and on. And she's smiling, holding a sign, and she says, "Science tells me I'm unique, I'm beloved, and all this stuff," and it just. Looking at that, it it's of many things. It's a false dichotomy. Right, right. Yeah. But it's this, I think it is this self-autonomy, this mm. desire to control my circumstances mm. by my own power, and that I have to be dependent on the grace of another. Like he, God can help me get a step up, but to do the whole thing for me, that's just hard for me mm. and my human fleshly pride to swallow. Related to that, I was actually just thinking about this today. I was thinking... The way our culture's going, everyone was saying, with postmodernism, everyone's a relativist. But now, everyone's making very absolute statements about what's morally right and wrong. And I was thinking, why is that? Well, and it's, I think because there's this level of autonomy where you say, it's just the, the new religion is the self. And uh, sin, in that definition, is whatever goes against what I want as a self. Whatever opposes what I want is sin. Hmm. So God, in this view, sins mm -hmm. against me mm -hmm. if he tells me I can't do X, Y, Z. And his preachers sin against me if they tell me that what I want is wrong or that I'm wrong for wanting mm -hmm. it. Um, and mm -hmm. so it's, it's ended up saying, I'm God, I define the rules. Uh, anyone else opposed to it is sinner mm -hmm. uh, within that new definition mm -hmm. um, so and that obviously creates major issues uh, and I think we're just we're surrounded by this as the world and that desire is also within us uh, lurking in the back mm -hmm. after we're redeemed mm -hmm. wanting to rear its ugly head right so it makes us devalue yeah uh, grace because it makes us devalue who God is in general as well yeah, and it gets back to the need of sermons like the one last week about being dead and your mm -hmm. trespasses. Mm -hmm. that, that so much 
I think it was maybe it was John Stott or some. It was another Brit. And he said if he had an hour on a train ride with someone who didn't believe in the gospel, he'd spend the first fifty minutes convincing them of their sin, hmm. and the last ten minutes sharing the hope of Christ with them. Uh, which is it's on the law. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. essentially. Yeah, and, and their own deadness. Um, did you have a, a, a question yeah. at the end of that second point? Yeah, so getting into the nitty-gritty of some of what you went through, um, when you were talking about uh, how what he's done, he, he raised us up and seated us with Christ, and he said being raised now means we have spiritual life with God. We've kind of fleshed that out before, so I, I thought we'd move on to the, the next part where you say he seated us with Christ. And you said that means something like... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the evil powers that are under Christ's authority, um, since we're with Christ uh, by union, we also participate in some sense in this. They no longer enslave us like they once did, so we can say no to them. And that gives us some level of authority, uh, not from our own power or, mm-hmm. or virtue, but because of Jesus' power. Um, what What are some of the practical effects of mm-hmm. believing this? Does it mean... We can bind Satan with our proclamations, you know, <laughs> slay Satan and do things like that. Or are there some other yeah. applications for that? Yeah, I don't, it's a, it's, I said, I think I said the sermon, it's kind of a mysterious idea. Yes. Um, and I was looking back at the notes from my, my seminary class on Romans and the professor had an illustration of this and it was, he had arrow, the arrows of the Holy Spirit pointing down like the effect of the Holy Spirit on us mm-hmm. and then the arrows of sort of the flesh pointing up and its effect on us and the arrows of the Holy Spirit were bigger arrows mm-hmm. and the arrows of the flesh mm-hmm. so that it's not a balanced force I guess at work on us uh, I mean one thing that comes to mind is a form of self-defeatism mm-hmm. if that's even a word mm-hmm. um, and you talk about these people that have what's it called a certain personality that's kind of always bringing, they kind of bring on uh, defeat to themselves. Is that what it's called, self-defeatism? That is, that is a term for it. Yeah. Okay, I think there's a, a better term. I can't think of it. Um, but I think as, as Christians, when we're struggling with a sin, we can sort of think that our falling into that sin is inevitable. And our being defined by that sin is inevitable. And there's really nothing we can do about it, right? Where um, it's got us trapped and we might as well just do it. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, just kind of get it over with mm-hmm. uh, because that's that's what's plaguing us. So I, that's not uh, speak and the you know, kind of Satan will disappear kind right. of thing. Right, right, um, But I do... I mean, I want to do both things, both in sober people to see the reality of spiritual warfare around them, but also encourage them not to feel inevitable defeat mm. from it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I was thinking it's like, uh, was it Augustine's chart of human development under redemptive history, where it's uh, not able, able to sin, uh, unable to not sin, not able to sin. So that's where we're at. We... There is a, a genuine sense in which we are, we're able not to sin. So that's where we're at. Yep. We're able not to sin. Um, you can be tempted and tried, and you can say no, but you're still capable of it. So uh, 
but that's very different from where we were because previously even the best good that we did was out of sin mm-hmm. uh, it was still in rebellion against God right it's like you're in a different kingdom mm-hmm. the, the king has exiled you and uh, you might do good things in your other little kingdom over there but you're in a kingdom against God mm-hmm. um, so that's the same the issues brought you into his kingdom now and you're able to do good mm-hmm. but you're also able to not do good right uh, so it, it's the transition though is radical I mean, he calls it being seated with Christ. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, there's a level of victory. There is absolutely a level of victory. But not perfectionism. Right, right. Yeah, the um, the verse that came to mind is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that mm-hmm. is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able uh, to endure it. So... You know, I don't know many Christians in our context, you know, at a Reformed church that I think are living too high in the victorious life, Mm. right? I mean, Mm. I think there's some, maybe some comments, but Mm. it seems to me it's the other way around, right? And maybe, uh, maybe in the Reformed world, because we focus on guilt and total depravity of the individual, that people may experience a lack of assurance because they dwell too much on that. Uh, They may... You know, say, well, I'm just a sinner. What else am I going to do? Mm. And so uh, I think injecting some of this victory right into our yeah. veins. Yeah. Uh, and it is victorious in the sense that sin and temptation will not have the victory over me today. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we could finish this podcast and I could punch you in the face. I'm so mad at you. Right? <laughs> oh, no. But right, my standing as a you know, a, a repentant sinner before God is unchanged, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. of who I am in Christ. And so I think that it, it's not victorious, like I'm going to beat every sin as long as I trust God enough. Mm-hmm. But it is victorious as far as it has no say on who I truly am and who I will be and where I will be forever. The third point is pretty straightforward. I called it grace for the legacy. Uh, and that was just uh, the I, just to reinforce this idea that we shine as trophies of God's grace for all of eternity. Um, you know, if he saved us because of who we were, we're not so much a trophy of what he's done. You know, kind of a, a trophy for ourselves. Uh, but we are continual kind of statutes, statues uh, to represent the mercy and grace of God. So um, I think I want to ask you on this final one, why are grace and glory so inseparable? You know, in chapter one, three different times, Paul says to the praise, well, the first time he says to the praise of his glorious grace, the second two times he says to the praise of his glory. So those, those sentences mean two different things, but still they're very much intertwined in Paul's mind. Yeah. Uh, do you have a thought on that? I mean, why are they so inseparable? I mean, for some reason, this world is is the, is reality. Uh-huh. This is how God has chosen to reveal who He is, and He's worked it out in such a way that it's revealing His glorious 
grace. So that's the one side, is His glorious grace. If man had never sinned, if man had never fallen, if none of this had ever happened, we would have no picture of His grace. Mm-hmm. There would be no reason to, to see His undeserved favor that uh, is to so incredible towards vicious, wicked people who hate Him. This shows us how incredible His grace is. There would never have been a, a painting of it or a picture of it or a, a video of it. Mm-hmm. And the very living picture of it is Jesus Himself. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the picture of grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the incarnation and the whole life of Jesus and the sufferings of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, that is the picture of His grace. And I love how He ends it, uh, where He says... Uh, in the coming, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness mm-hmm. toward us in Christ Jesus. It's uh, you can't measure the level of grace he's shown now, but forever in Jesus, we'll we'll always be looking at Jesus, mm-hmm. who is the picture of God's favor towards us, uh, and that's that. It's like a magnification of his glory. Uh, we. He would have been glorious whether or not he made the world this way, and we saw that grace. But this just leads to the exaltation of God. Mm-hmm. We, we get to magnify mm-hmm. how wonderful he is because he's displaying his grace. So uh, that's my view of how he joins them together. It's all in Christ and our delight mm-hmm. in Christ forever. Uh, that leads to the display of his glory. And he, he could have displayed it another way. Mm-hmm. But he displayed it this way, and it's it's in a gracious way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think they're they're yoked together. In addition to what you're saying, in the sense that if there's the less grace there is, the less glory, mm-hmm. right? Because the less deserving of praise. And I say this, I think, in the membership class when we were talking about this lesson. But if we've contributed just a drop to our salvation, then we really should reserve one Sunday of the year to praise ourselves. Right, I mean, God gets fifty-one Sundays, so that fifty-second should be ours. Right, we should get a little bit of that glory. Uh, and no one's fool enough, to, foolish enough to even do that. No, right, no. it's all about the glory of God because we know, and I think that's where our friends who might not, in, our friends in Christ who might not fully agree with our understanding of salvation as all of grace, would be a, a bit inconsistent here because mm-hmm. I think they they would desire to give God all the praise and the glory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so grace for the legacy. Uh, closing thought. Uh, what impact does all this talk about grace have on our lives? Hmm. Um, you have a kind of a, maybe a closing thought of application um, about, I don't know. I mean, I had a couple. One was on just security that kind of goes back to that first point. Mm-hmm. Um, you also mentioned uh, humility at the end. I did, yes. Uh, that, I mean, I think it... For one, it's, it should lead us to a kind of delight in God that marks our life so that we have joy in all circumstances uh, because the smaller circumstances of our lives, the physical issues, are nothing in comparison to everlasting life. Uh, what's 80 years, 90 years of suffering compared to an infinity of glory with God? Uh, so it should mark our lives with joy in, in Jesus Christ, but it should also promote humility, like you said at the end. If, if it's all Him and for His purposes, and I'm part of His big story, 
and his big goal. Um, and he, he's pulled me out when I didn't deserve it. Uh, I have no, uh, I can have no pride. And we're going to talk about that uh, yeah, someday. Right. Yeah. There's no room for boasting. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but that's what it should lead us to. I think that's partly why he moves on yeah. to his discussion is we're humbled by it. Mm-hmm. Um, I deserve this mm-hmm. and he did all this. Mm-hmm. And so it shouldn't change our lives. It should mm-hmm. make us humble people. And that's, you know, that's part of our prayer every day is that I would believe the things that are true mm-hmm. so that I'll become the person that I ought to be, mm-hmm. the humble person. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I think, as I was thinking more about it last few days, I think that this God's grace towards us produces grace in us. Mm-hmm. And God makes us gracious people. And that, that's part of the Christian path of meekness and humility. Uh, and it is, you know, we talk about the irony of people who believe in the doctrines of grace being so arrogant. Mm-hmm. Usually their arrogance is not... They're not arrogant that God chose them, so it's not a one-to-one connection. But they're just—they're arrogant in being the, or we are arrogant in being those who know the right things. You got the doctrine right, right? And it's—I mean, it is such a bad testimony when Christians are ungracious towards the world and to each other. And honestly, I mean, we have such a unique moment right now in our country to exhibit Christ-like grace towards one another um humility as we don't entirely know what's going on right Mm -hmm. (laughs) humility in that our previous held belief system may be cracking or may come in contrast with others right i mean i think we have all probably experienced ungracious interactions with fellow christians the last few months and we're probably all guilty of it as well Part of that's just the stress or whatever, but uh, I think there is a one-to-one correlation between knowing and living in the experience of God's immeasurable, unlimited grace towards us, and that that works on us, that we're gracious towards our spouse and our kids and our unbelieving neighbors and our co-workers and our fellow church members. Um, And I think that's just... I'm not... The closing application is not to tell people to be more gracious, (laughs) but it is to look at the one who has been gracious to us Mm. so that he might continue to transform us to be more and more gracious people. Mm. Any other closing thoughts? I was thinking of the line, uh, consider others as more important than yourselves. And that, that reality that that you, someone would actually feel that way. So th- this other person is more important to me. I should consider their safety. I should consider their uh, their health. I should consider their feelings about this. That can only flow from knowing that I I am not the most important thing here. I've I've deserved judgment, and I've been saved and brought into God's family. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the only way that that can take effect in our lives mm-hmm. and if anyone is to be modeling that right now it should be christians because yeah, we that's right are the only ones that truly know grace mm-hmm. all right well we'll continue the conversation next week we've got a banger of a sermon coming up on sunday with a great text so thanks for listening to watering seeds we hope you found this conversation helpful as you seek to live out your faith this week uh, join us next week we're going to discuss uh, the sermon does it have a title yet an anatomy of grace an anatomy of grace so more grace so listen to that on sunday 
uh, on our recording, uh, and we will uh, uh, join together next week on the podcast. Until then, grace be with you all. <laughs>